You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. And for the rest of us, we're going to be getting back into the book of Philippians. So if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 3, that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. So Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. I'll give you a moment to get there. All right. So let's read God's word together before we begin. So Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we look to this text this morning, this, this word from you, Father, we believe that your Bible This Bible in our laps in front of us, Lord, we believe it to be your very breathed out word, inherent, infallible, profitable for the building up of your church, profitable for the the sharing of the good news of Christ and evangelism. Father, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear the word that you have provided for us. And Father, we pray that as we look at this text, that we would see and behold the surpassing value of Christ above all else. Father, Spirit, we pray that you would help us in this work. Help us to see. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And remember a, a parable Jesus gave. Jesus was great at images. And finding those images that kind of captured spiritual truths, sometimes in brief and very vivid ways. And I'm sure you remember this one from Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, this is Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So as you look at your life, a question that I think is going to be in the forefront of this message today is an important question, a probing question, a a convicting question, but a question we must ask. And that question is, what is your treasure? What is your treasure? That simple question, if you answer it honestly, reveals more about who we are than anything. Because that question begins to unearth deep within our hearts who our true or who or what our true God is. So what excites you the most? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What captivates your attention? What dominates the loves of your hearts? What steals your focus away from everything else? Whatever that is, that's that's your treasure. And the true treasure of our life isn't revealed by our speech, what we say it is. Because you can say lots of things and that might not necessarily be true. So your treasure isn't revealed by what you say. It's really revealed in what you love, in what you love. Many may say, Jesus is my treasure. He's my treasure. I love him. I, I care for him. I want to live for him. But when you begin to like look at their lives a little bit and you begin to see that, that their focus their attention, their energy, their money, all of it's going to very different pursuits, revealing that their their true love, their true treasure might not be Jesus, but the actual God of their heart may be career, romance, children, success, fame, you, you name the idol. And as you examine your heart, as we look to this text, and this text is going to force us to do that, we must honestly and transparently ask ourselves that question, what is the treasure of my heart? Because the passage today is a significant one. And this passage, I think, over my Christian life has personally convicted me and shaped me more times than I can count. Every time I read it, I'm blown away by my own failure to sufficiently value and see the glory of Christ. So in Philippians 3, 1 through 11, Paul is going to remind the Philippian church yet again, the same things to you is, is of no trouble to me. Paul doesn't mind sharing with them again about the surpassing value of Christ, of the gain of knowing Christ, and ultimately the worthlessness of personal and religious accomplishments. So here he he is exposing for us and for the Philippian church, Paul is trying to expose the phony treasures of religious accomplishment and tries to showcase and highlight and cast light on the glory of that treasure in the field, of that pearl of great price, who is Jesus himself. So that's exactly what I'm going to try to do as I preach this text to you this morning is that if you're not a Christian today, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Redemption Church. But through this this text of Philippians, I want to try to show you why Jesus is of surpassing value. And I want to urge you and plead with you and implore with you to make Christ 
the treasure of your heart. And if you are a Christian, I want to remind you of the treasure in which you profess to be your treasure and urge you to actually live like Jesus is your treasure, to help you see and help you live in light of this surpassing treasure of Christ. So here's the sermon summary, if you want a sermon in a sentence. Forsake the rubbish of accomplishment and see the value of Christ. Forsake the rubbish of accomplishment and see the value or behold the value of Christ. So let's first dive in this morning to the first point from verse one through six, as we look at the rubbish of human accomplishment, the rubbish of human accomplishment. So as Paul begins this new chapter, he begins with a warning, a warning to the church, a warning that we must hear. And Paul writes to them again. Again, he doesn't mind doing it multiple times. Preachers often say the same things over and over and over again because we are so forgetful, right? Sometimes we need to be told multiple times. So Paul's writing to them yet again, warning them against this group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. He warns them to look out, watch out for these dogs, he says. These dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. These are the Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? Well, the Judaizers constantly sought to add to the gospel of justification by faith. They taught that, you know, before you can become a Christian, before you can believe in Jesus, you have to first become a Jew. You have to first follow the law. You have to first be circumcised. Then you can become a Christian. And all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Galatians, right, Paul is adamant, vehemently rejecting this as a devilish distortion of the true gospel. And so in fiery and derogatory language here, Paul is urging the church of Philippi to be on guard against these false teachers within the church. And he calls them dogs, dogs. Now, when he calls them dogs, this is not a loving term for your bros, right? This isn't like the Baja men's one-hit wonder who let the dogs out, right? That's, that's not what Paul has in mind. And it's not like Randy Jackson from American Idol, remember him? He used to call everybody dog who walked into the room, right? That's, this isn't like some affectionate term for sweet little puppies. No, in the first century, nobody had dogs as pets. Nobody wanted dogs as pets because dogs were filthy animals, scavengers, wild and filthy They were the animals that ran through the streets, dirty, diseased, rummaging through the garbage. They were disgusting. They were unclean. In fact, the Jews would call the Gentile people dogs as a derogatory term because they were unclean before God. But yet notice the reversal here, right? As Paul calls these Judaizers dogs, he's, he's telling them that these Judaizers who valued the Jewish tradition so much, who valued obedience to the law, guess what? They're the true dogs. They're the true unclean. Now that the new covenant has come, they are the ones unclean and outside of the people of God. Not necessarily the Gentiles who come to Christ in faith. Now that the new covenant has come, things have been reversed. Though they thought they were clean... They were actually unclean. And he calls them also not just dogs, but evildoers. 
Right? Isn't that amazing that these people who valued their religious works and duties so much, they've actually distorted the gospel so much so that they're deceiving other people into a works-based type of religion, which is not Christianity. And so these Judaizers who thought they were doing what is good are actually doing what is evil. Then he calls them mutilators of the flesh, doesn't he? Mutilators of the flesh. Remember, they were trying to add the work of circumcision as a requirement of salvation. According to the law, all Jewish boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. It meant, circumcision, it meant that you were a part of the people of God. But Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not the way the new covenant works. These Judaizers, he says, have become mutilators of the flesh. Circumcision, Paul is saying here, is no longer the identifier of God's people. But rather, what marks God's people, it is those who worship Christ Jesus. They who thought they were circumcising are actually just mutilating the flesh. Paul's rejection of these teachers is is all the more astonishing as we begin to to dive into Paul's biography here in these verses, doesn't it? Paul shares kind of his own own testimony in verses 5 through 6. He says, well, if if anybody wants to boast in their religious accomplishments, check me out. Check what I've done. Check what I have accomplished in my religious upbringing. And he shuns this idea of of any earthly accomplishment that we might try to use to think that God will accept us on that grounds. Because if anyone had grounds for boasting, it was Paul. Paul in his day represented the apex of religious accomplishment. I mean, seriously, he was top rung. He had all the accolades, all the badges, all the titles. He was, in many ways, the perfect Jew. And he kind of goes through those list of accomplishments, right? He was circumcised on the eighth day, just as the law commanded. He was a purebred Jew. Like he could trace his, his genealogical roots all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, conservative, meticulous when it came to obedience to the law. And he was zealous, so zealous for the Jewish faith that he persecuted the church. And from his estimation, from his examination, he followed the law blamelessly. He did all that it was, he was commanded to do. And we have to be careful because the same pharisaical mindset that Paul used to have and that these Judaizers did have, it can sneak its way into the church in a heartbeat. Loads of churchgoers put their confidence and their religious accolades as if their Christian checklist will earn them standing before God. They may have stellar church attendance. They may have generous giving statements. They may have impeccable consistency when it comes to their own personal quiet times. And they brag about how they've taught Sunday school for so many years. And they buck up in pride when they talk about the positions of leadership they have held in the church. And like Pharisees, there are many people in the church who foolishly and tragically place their confidence in their performance rather than Christ's performance on their behalf. You see, Paul holds no punches when it comes to these Pharisees. They are dogs They are mutilators of the flesh. They are evildoers. Such people who think and act in this way are not a part of the people of God. 
So who are the true people of God? Who are the, the true, truly circumcised? You see, it's not those who are physically circumcised, but, but Paul says those who are spiritually circumcised. The Old Testament command for circumcision does not continue, nor is it replaced by infant baptism, as many of our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters believe. Circumcision finds its fulfillment not in baptism, but in the new birth, in regeneration. This is what marks the boundaries of the church, and this is the mark of those who are truly a part of the people of God. Look at verse 3 very carefully. Paul says, for we are the circumcision, the true circumcision. This is who the true people of God, right? And they are characterized by three things. A, they, they worship by the Spirit of God. You can't worship by the Spirit of God if you're not born again, right? If you haven't received the, the Spirit. B, they glory in Christ Jesus. And C, they put no confidence in the flesh. You see, those who are, who are truly the people of God don't put any confidence in their religious works as they stand before God. They do not believe that they can be obedient enough to merit God's favor, but rather the people who are truly a part of the church, truly a part of the people of God, they, they by the Spirit, have been born of the Spirit, and they can now see Jesus as their all-consuming treasure, as glorious, and they repent of their accomplishments, and they confess that such accomplishment, accomplishments that they did have were pursued even with sinful motives. You see, confidence in the flesh is futile, and it is foolish. Don't get caught in this trap. You can never, never be good enough to earn God's favor. You can never be righteous enough to think that, that he might accept you on your righteousness. Your sin is too great. Your sin is too devious, too filthy. You see, the plight of our sinfulness cannot be covered up with good deeds. You can't do it. Now, if you have this bright idea one day to go out and roll in the mud, you don't get out of the mud covered in it and just go and put on a tuxedo and think that you're clean, right? That's dumb. Changing clothes won't address the fact that you're filthy from head to toe. No, what you really need is not a tuxedo. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. And the cleansing for our sin is only the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you trust in your own accomplishments for your salvation, you will not have salvation. You'll stand before God in a tuxedo while you're covered in mud. Let this be a warning to all of us who are tempted, as so many are, particularly in this Bible Belt culture, to play the church game. People can become quite skillful in their performance of play acting as a Christian but yet a true Christian is one who has forsaken religious accomplishments, who has forsaken their performance, and who have wholeheartedly and wholly dependently on Christ thrown themselves on him and upon his grace. So how about you? Are you trusting in your religious accomplishments to save you? Have you come to see, like Paul is going to come and see, that they're all rubbish, you see, it is a good thing when you realize your own spiritual report card has lost its luster. <laughs> when God helps you see that, hey, I'm not making A spiritually, I'm making F, so I'm failing, that is a good thing to realize. And it can kind of be alarming 
for the first time when you realize how, how wretched we are, how our good deeds are, are but filthy rags before the Lord. And it's only when we lose confidence in the flesh that we can begin to have confidence in Christ. And so if you're losing confidence in your own ability to earn God's favor, bless the Lord for what he's doing in your life. Because only then can you begin to truly and wholeheartedly put your confidence in Christ alone. See, the reason many of us, many people, trust in their own religious accomplishments is because they have yet to see the surpassing value of Christ. And that leads us to the second point this morning, as we consider the value of knowing Christ. The value of knowing Christ. Paul considers everything he used to have, all the accomplishments, all the titles, all the fame, all the reputation, he considers it now as loss, he says, compared to the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of Christ. You see, in this section, there's this sense of comparison between the the surpassing worth of Christ on the one hand compared to the highest human privileges that Paul possessed in his day. And there really is no comparison when you begin to hold those two up. When your eyes are open to be able to see and to behold the value of Christ, everything else by comparison begins to turn into rubbish. As the song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face. And when you do that, what happens? The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the sin by its nature is delusional. Delusional. Sin darkens our minds. It disables us from seeing reality. So in our sin, we grab all sorts of treasures in this world. But when God does a work of grace in our hearts... And when he opens up our eyes supernaturally to be able to to behold the glory of Christ, to be able to understand who Jesus is and just how amazing what he's done for us, you begin to see reality for the first time. Begin to see reality as it truly is. You don't see your own sin, twisted, distorted version of it, but rather you see the truth and God allows you to see the gracious vision of Christ's worth. And as you behold that, it exposes that, that all these things you used to call treasures aren't treasures. It's just a bunch of junk. Just a bunch of junk. And what is some of that junk that we tend to mistakenly treasure? Well, I'm sure you can identify several of them just in your own heart. Just look around our culture. We live in a world that idolizes fame and worships achievement. Everyone is looking for their 15 minutes of fame nowadays, right? Particularly on social media from ridiculous stunts from YouTube celebrities to the vapidly curated pictures of Instagram. Everyone's hunting for likes. Everybody's looking for followers. Everybody's trying to get fame and, and success so they can have the privileges of wealth and power and prestige. You see, it's interesting to note, right, as we look at Paul's life, he had all that, <laughs> He had all that and more. He had wealth. He had power. He had prestige. He had reputation. He had influence. And it's interesting to know that Paul had all that. He had professional success more than any of us would, would ever hope to have. But that's what makes his statement here all the more shocking. He considers it rubbish, junk, in order that he might gain Christ. You see, the affections of your heart 
can only be redirected by something or someone more beautiful. As human beings, we cannot help but do what we love, to gaze towards what we love. You cannot pursue and want what you do not think is valuable. It's important as we understand how the human heart works is we are what we love. So Paul's transformation of perspective comes on that road to Damascus. Remember that? The Lord Jesus knocks him off his horse. And even though he lost his sight in that moment, he actually truly saw for the first time. He saw what was truly valuable. He saw who was truly beautiful. You see, the greater beauty displaces the love of lesser beauties in your heart. And it is only when God, by his grace, helps you to see and to behold by his spirit the excellencies of Christ, only then can you truly love him as your treasure and as your God and as your king, as that pearl of great price. And look, that's Paul's desire here, right? Look at what he says. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants to know more of Christ. And check this out, the type of knowing that he's interested in and is not just gaining an encyclopedic-like knowledge of Jesus. That's not what he's interested in. That's part, he wants to know about Christ, the facts of Jesus, of course, but, but he wants to know Christ on a personal level. He, just, he doesn't want to just know his mind. He wants to know his heart. And he desires this so much so that, that everything else is counted as loss for this purpose. Notice Paul's singular passion, his only focus, his only treasure is to know Christ. As he said earlier in the letter, right? To live is Christ. That's his focus. That's his treasure. That's his joy. And Christ is more valuable and more precious than anything this world has to offer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is that pearl of great price? That Jesus as the Son of God, as God incarnate, that he is infinite in his perfections, he is excellent in all of his attributes, that in Christ is abounding love, exquisite delight, everlasting peace, eternal security, salvation from hell, forgiveness from sins. That though the benefits of Christ, they flow down like a generous river of grace, the river is sourced in the deep fountain of Christ himself, from whom all blessings flow. Jesus is beauty unto himself. He is the source of all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is lovely, all that is valuable. You see, when Christ is discovered by a supernatural opening of the eyes, when you see that, when God gives you that sight, everything else is rubbish by comparison. Because of Christ, we would gladly suffer the loss of all things if it meant that we had Christ because it really is no sacrifice to give up all things for Christ. Would you mourn giving up a piece of junk for a treasure? Who mourns the abandonment of lesser pleasures for a greater pleasure? You see, it's no sacrifice to give up all for Christ because Christ is infinitely better than what we are giving up. You see, so you may be thinking that important question now. 
And it's a question we have to ask ourselves is, what if, what if I don't see Christ as beautiful? What if I don't in my heart, I, I, I don't see him as that treasure? What if I've yet to receive that gracious vision of Christ that does reorient my life? If that's you, I, I want to just give you some counsel because what you're waiting on is for the new birth. What you're waiting on is for God to convert you, to save you. And if that's you, if you fail to see Christ as beautiful in any sort of way, let me give you a few, few points of counsel. First, pray that God would give you sight to see Christ as excellent. Pray and ask the Lord, plead with the Lord, implore with him that if the Lord alone does this work, and if the Lord alone does this work, then we must plead with him and plead with him for him to give it to us. And second, you should devote yourself to the study of scripture. Devote yourself to the word of God, to the preaching of the Bible, because these are the means of grace God has given us that the spirit uses to give us spiritual sight. And then thirdly, persist in seeking after God. Persist in seeking after God. You will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. God does not turn aside humbled sinners who desperately call out to him in faith. Wait until that vision of Christ comes. And for the moment you see Christ as your treasure, that is the moment of the new birth. That is the moment of saving faith. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian, you might be having another similar question. Is, I know Christ is my treasure and and I want to love him exclusively. I want to see him of surpassing worth, but, but my love has cooled. In fact, maybe you feel rather spiritually dull and your desire to know Christ has waned as you're becoming distracted with other things in the world. If that's you, I would give you the exact same counsel. <laughs> Pray that God would stoke the slumbering embers of your heart and turn them into a blaze again. Devote yourselves to scripture. Devote yourselves to the preaching of the word, these means of grace that God will use to awaken your slumbering affections and persist in that work of waiting and of seeking the Lord in the word until the Lord sends his reviving and renewing grace again, and he will do so. You see, when we see Christ as valuable, as precious, everything begins to change. That when Christ is your treasure, your whole world is turned upside down and your life takes on a new meaning, a new focus. However, Paul goes on to describe just how our lives are turned upside down when he unpacks what it means to be found in Christ. And that leads us to the third point this morning, the privileges of union with Christ. The privileges of union with Christ. And if I were to add a fourth Fourth suggestion, fourth counsel there of how you can provoke love for Christ in your heart. I think meditating on just what Christ has done for us would be another one. And that's what Paul does here in verse 9 through 11. He, he shares with us, he teaches us, he shows us just why Christ is of surpassing value. What has Christ done for us? I think in many ways, Philippians 3, 9 through 11 is a summary statement of all of Paul's writings. I think it's that dense, that compact, that summarizing. In many ways, I think it's a summation of his teaching and of his theology. 
And the question that kind of drives this discussion, beginning in verse 9, is, is what does it mean to be found in him? Look at what he says in verse 9, right? And be found in him. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be united to Christ? That those who have found Christ to be beautiful, that those who have made Jesus their treasure, as every true Christian has, now we find ourselves united to Christ in him. What does that mean? And Paul explains that for us in these next few verses. So let me kind of break this down, these privileges of union with Christ, giving you the first one. The grounds for this union is faith. The grounds for this union is faith. We are united to Christ through faith in Christ. Look at what Paul says here. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The end of verse 9, you see that there? We are saved by faith alone. Our works, our achievements, they can't save us. We can't unite ourselves to Christ or our religious accomplishments, right? We, we talked about the rubbish of trying to do that. But faith is this desperate trusting, this full reliance, this dependency on Christ alone for our salvation. We are justified by faith alone. And faith, faith alone is what forms the union between Christ and his people. To be saved by faith is to be united to Christ. But a second benefit is we see the benefits of this union is righteousness is righteousness. So as we think about our union with Christ, that union is formed, it's established, it's grounded in faith. But the benefits of this union is Christ's righteousness. Not your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness given to you. Faith acknowledges our own lack of righteousness, right? That part of becoming a Christian is to confess, I'm not righteous, I'm a sinner. I stand condemned before God, but Christ is righteous. And that by faith, we acknowledge our own righteousness and we fling ourselves in, in desperation upon Christ's righteousness alone. Notice what Paul, Paul is saying here, right? So important. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do, right? get righteousness through the law. Paul says, no, I don't have that. And I kept the law blamelessly. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what is Paul saying there? The righteousness that we need, the righteousness we need to be justified, the righteousness we need to be saved doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from Christ. And that when we unite ourselves to Jesus by faith, then the righteousness we need comes into our lives. I can't produce righteousness in myself, and you can't do it either. And you'd be a fool to try. The righteousness we need comes from God. It's given to us. It's imputed to us on our account through Christ in faith. You see, the benefit of righteousness is all given to us by Jesus. That when I'm united to Christ, when I'm in him, Christ by faith, Christ's righteousness becomes my own righteousness. My identity is now found in Jesus. And whatever Jesus possessed, he now shares with me. Completely undeserving. 
completely all by God's grace. So now in Jesus, through faith, his perfect righteousness is now accredited to me. And that leads to a third benefit, Paul says. The sharing of this union is suffering. It's suffering. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like much of a benefit. Well, it is. Being united to Christ means that my life now mirrors the life of Christ himself. That our union in Christ is established in the suffering of Christ. Right? It's only through Jesus' death upon the cross that Christ's atoning blood can cover my sin. So that when I trust him in faith, I can be forgiven of my sin. Someone had to pay the penalty. Someone had to absorb the wrath of God for my sin, and that was Jesus. He did it upon the cross. However, just as Christ suffered for my salvation, now in Christ, my life is now one of suffering, just as his was. That in the flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's what Paul means when he says that in Colossians 1.24. Is that I'm picking up my cross, I'm following Jesus, counting the cost, I'm, I'm dying to myself, I'm counting all things as rubbish, and enduring whatever sacrifice that entails, all so that I might gain Christ. I am pouring myself out as a drink offering, as Paul would say. That part of knowing Christ means that in my union with him, I'm sharing in his sufferings to such an extent that I'm becoming even like him in his death. And that leads to the, the fourth privilege of being united to Christ is the power of this union is resurrection. The power of this union is resurrection. That as I come to share in the sufferings of Christ, I also come to share in the power of Christ. That because I'm united to Jesus, yes, that means I share gladly, joyfully in his sufferings in this present age, However, I'm also privileged to share in his power and victory and glorious resurrection. So it is on the basis of my union with Jesus that I share in his resurrection power. So now that I'm in Christ, my whole identity has, has shifted and changed. As Paul would say in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's on the grounds of my, my union with Christ that I can comprehend with greater depth, greater richness, that the more I come to know him, the more I'm transformed by him, and the more I press into my union with Christ, the more I delight in him and rejoice in him. The more I press into that, the more I become like Christ. And I grow in righteousness, I grow in holiness, I grow in grace. And in a mysterious way, I'm sharing in the beauty of Christ as Christ makes me beautiful, as I'm conformed to his likeness. And because I'm conformed, because I'm in Christ, I can share in the power of resurrection, knowing that when my time comes and when I die, that I too will be raised at the end of the age in glorious resurrection power as Christ comes again. And this causes me, this, these privileges cause me to treasure Christ all the more. So this morning, I pray, I hope that you have come to the realization that all of your accolades, all of your achievements, they're all rubbish. They're rubbish. They're not worth squat compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. 
May God grant us all eyes to see his beauty and his worth this morning. And as we treasure Christ, as we exalt Christ here this morning in our hearts, may we enjoy the privileges of our union with him for all of eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so humbled. Lord, we confess that in so many ways we rely on our performance, on our duties, on our accolades, on our achievements, so often more than we rely on your grace. Father, it is so easy. And Lord, we live in a culture in which it's been so easy to get caught up in this attitude of trying to do more good to try to earn your favor. But Father, as we've seen from this text, that is a foolish, foolish thing to do. And Lord, it will lead us only to our destruction. Lord, we are so sinful that we cannot be righteous in our own making. Father, that we must fling ourselves in desperation upon Christ alone, who is righteous. And Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that Christ has come to die in the place of sinners like us, so that anyone who might repent and believe in Christ in saving faith will now be found in Christ and receive Christ's righteousness as their own. Father, I pray for those this morning who might not know Jesus, who might not see Jesus as their surpassing treasure. Father, I pray that you would give them eyes to see today. And Lord, give them faith to trust in Christ as their surpassing treasure. And Father, I pray for those of us who are in Christ this morning. Lord, we know that it is so easy to be like a dog who returns to its vomit. Lord, to go back and to try to find treasure in the things of this world, to find satisfaction and joy and peace. Father, help us to see who Christ really is as our treasure and joy, and help us to live in light of that truth. Help us to see that these other idols that so many people live their lives for, or that they're rubbish, they're junk, compared to the surpassing value and worth and beauty of Jesus. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and in our lives as we confess our sins, as we sing, as we prepare to come to your table together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.